Father, thank you for your work in our lives in so many different ways. Just hearing Carl share earlier about his job as an electrician and being on the job and having conversations with people and you see someone hurting and, and that conversation comes to share about our faith. God, help every one of us to be aware of those opportunities. Uh, sometimes it doesn't mean we are able to share the full gospel story right then, but but to be available, to pray, to follow up, to share our faith. Uh, God, help us to be ready when those opportunities come and be willing to build those relationships and, and build trust with people and, and to go out and, and share the hope that we have in Christ. So God, thanks for that encouragement from Carl. Thank you for the celebration that there are missionary families around the world seeking to raise their kids and, and, and share the gospel and that our church was able to be part of their kids coming to faith in Christ. That's an incredible connection for, for our church and the partnerships that we have and the gospel and missions around the world. God, thank you for that. God, we pray for those in our church who are, who are hurting, who are, who are sick, for Bill and for Donna and others. God, I pray for Stu and his team as they're in that hotel in Bolivia and all the unrest in that country and things that are going on. God, I pray that you would use this, a situation that they never imagined going like this, God, that you would still open up opportunities for them to train up pastors and share the gospel, and maybe even through this situation, God, that you would give them unique opportunities to speak about the gospel and speak about faith in that country and everything that the people there are facing. And God, we do pray for the people of that country that there would be those who are able to be a light in a dark place during this time. God, use this time tonight of of Bible study and encouragement that, that we would go out for the second half of this week seeking to honor you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to show you one. There was a sheet that just had a front side that said, Takeaways from the 2019 Oklahoma Baptist Annual Meeting. I know you came tonight to study the Word and not hear about Oklahoma Baptist life, so I'm aware of that. I'm not going to take a, a long time to do this, but I did want to give you an update. Uh, our church partners with other Baptist churches and the Southern Baptist Convention. Remember, in Baptist life, every local church is autonomous and, and individual, so there's not a big bureaucratic group out there that tells us what to do. Every little church is autonomous, but we do choose to partner together for mission work, ministry, seminary training, those type of things, and we do that in an associational level here locally in Norman. We do that on a state level, and we do that on a national level. And so on a state level, Oklahoma Baptists get together the second Monday and Tuesday of November and, and have our annual meeting and talk about what ministry in the state looks like. So I just thought I'd give you a couple of takeaways from the meeting on Monday and Tuesday. Number one, we have a new name, sort of. <laughs> so for a long time, since the time that I was a little kid, I knew this as the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. And no matter how many times you say it, it sounds like way too many words, and we'll say BGCO, and it, it has almost a little bit of a formal bureaucratic feel to it. So we are now just Oklahoma Baptists. That's just who we are. So what are you part of? I'm just part of Oklahoma Baptists. Now, I'm sure on some legal paperwork somewhere, we're probably still the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, but we're just trying to refer to ourselves going forward as Oklahoma Baptists. A little less formal, a little more obvious about what we're trying to do together as, as people. And our motto, 
uh, going forward is that we encourage one another to advance the gospel. I really like that. And there, Hans could break down for you. Every one of those words has a purpose behind it. But it's just very simple. Like, why do we have all these churches working together? Because we're trying to encourage one another to move the gospel forward, to advance the gospel to people who haven't heard, who need to know about the good news of Jesus. So that's how we're going to do it. Trying to be simplified and decentralized. We don't need a building of people on North May Avenue in Oklahoma City who are trying to come up with programs for local churches to do. We don't need that. We do need people who can provide support and resources and encouragement as local churches are doing their work. And that's kind of the direction we're going as a state, which I love. I think it's very healthy. It's good days, good days for Oklahoma Baptists. So there are good things happening there. Now, it's been a reduction in the number of people who have an office on North May Avenue, but it's mainly been from retirements and they just haven't hired people back. So it's not like they went in and fired a bunch of people. It's just not replacing positions as people as people retire. Number two, Dr. Heath Thomas has been nominated as the 16th president of Oklahoma Baptist University, and not just nominated, but, but elected. So he will start on January 1st. My family's excited about this because I have more time to give to my family because this search committee process is, uh, is finished. So it was a great honor to be on the search committee for, for OBU president. It was God-honoring. I came out of it encouraged, came out of it more excited than ever, uh, but it was a lot of work and a lot of time. So uh, Dr. Heath Thomas, I think, will be a, a fantastic person for that role. He's been a dean at OBU in the theology school, uh, and so he's, he's been there. His, some of you, this doesn't mean anything other than maybe five or ten of you, but his dad is a man named Claude Thomas who pastored Council Road Baptist Church back in the late 80s, early 90s, and also was pastor at First Baptist Euless, Texas, a church that is just gigantic. And so Claude Thomas is a well-known guy in SBC life, but we tarry. Let's move on. Number three. Um, this, this meeting, just some focus on some back-to-the-basic goals, increased baptisms, increased attendance, increased cooperative program giving, just an encouraging churches to do what Oklahoma Baptist churches have always done well. Don't get distracted on side things. Let's do the things we've been called to do. Oklahoma Baptists have committed to work toward a 20% increase in attendance over the next three years, hopefully three years, maybe five years, but looking at a 20% attendance. So you take where we are, a church of about 60 people, us being part of that, hoping that 720 people uh, would be a part of Emmaus three years down the road. Goals just give you something to work toward. Hey, let's work toward this. Let's see this happen. Um, so those are things we talked about. Focusing on key areas of brokenness in Oklahoma. So if you're trying to advance the gospel, you're trying to get the good news of Jesus into dark places. Oklahoma Baptists have identified four areas of brokenness in Oklahoma. Prison and jail ministry, addiction recovery, hunger, and foster and adoptive care. And I kind of put a note on there about how those things are happening through Emmaus all already. Um, Jim is having some really interesting conversations with more police department related to how we can respond and care for people who are, in, who are homeless and hungry and hurting in, in this area. And so those, that's kind of where we are. And then finally, last night, Oklahoma, for maybe the first time ever, that might be a stretch, but I, it may be the first time ever, 
we hosted an international mission board sending service or, or commissioning service. And Paul Chitwood, who's the new leader of International Mission Board, he spoke at that, and we sent out missionaries, several of whom are from here in, in Oklahoma. So Oklahoma has a long led the way for mission sending in the SBC. All the missionaries out there, International Mission Board, Oklahoma's the third-ranked state where, where those missionaries come from. Texas, North Carolina, and Oklahoma are where international missionaries come from for places all over the world. And uh, so we're excited, uh, excited about that. Look under B, so five, International Mission Board Commissioning Service, point B. The SBC is focusing in coming years on a couple of areas, raising cooperative program funding to try to get 500 more missionaries to key areas around the world that they've identified. And then they're really focusing on two areas. How do you get business people and retirees into areas on short and all long-term trips? How do you focus in those areas? And then focusing on college and young adults going to serve uh, two-year terms, maybe, maybe longer, but two years in some of these some of these areas. And so we want to continue to be a part about what God's doing in those areas. Jim has been at meetings all day with the International Mission Board on different things that are happening. And he came by the office for a split second this afternoon. And let me tell you, that guy is fired up. Uh, so he, you could tell he'd come out of meetings with the International Mission Board today. He was pumped. So he's at Henderson Hills tonight with a series of meetings. And then tomorrow night, we're taking some of our college and young adults for a focus, especially on how we can send college and young adults to, to these opportunities for, uh, for mission work. So that's that. Any questions while we're talking about it, about Oklahoma Baptist life, things that are happening in missions, any rumors you've heard uh, that we need to, uh, need to quell? OBU is not going under. We are doing just fine, so don't, don't spread any bad rumors about Baptist life. Any, any questions, anything like that? I know you came because we're such a political church. You guys came for the denominational politics tonight, so <laughs> nope. That's why people come to Emmaus, so they don't have to do that. <laughs> All right, let's look at Scripture here. Okay, Matthew chapter 19 is where we are tonight, and and we're dealing with a very sensitive topic tonight. I, I realize this is not theory. Uh, for, for many, many of you, this is real life. This, you deal with this personally. You deal with this in your family. And so I want to be very careful and very aware of that. We want to consider what God's word says. How do we lead forward as a church on, on these topics? So Matthew chapter 19, here's what it says. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. But then some Pharisees came to test him. And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, so we s we're set up here. <laughs> Jesus is continuing this move toward Jerusalem. He's going to continue to have these debates with the Jewish leaders over the law, over tradition. Uh, it's obvious here that they're not coming in good faith. They want to trip him up. They want to test him. Notice there in verse 1 where it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things. 
I've told you before that the book of Matthew is broken. It has a beginning, an end, and it has five main sections in the middle. Each of the main sections in the middle ends with this phrase. Let me show you something really neat. If you go back to Matthew chapter 8, really quick, we'll just walk through and, and look at how this happens. It won't take very long, but actually it would be the end of Matthew chapter 7. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And then in Matthew 7, 28, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So that ends in the first section. Then you go over to chapter 10, and there's a big, long teaching section in chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the disciples, and then in chapter 11, verse 1, after Jesus, this is 11:1. after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to, to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. There's the second time that it happens. Then you go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is a chapter of parables being taught. Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. There's the next indication of this happening in Matthew. Then you get over to Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, and Jesus has just come out of a series of teaching about what it means to be a part of the community, a part of the people of God. In Matthew 19, 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee. So you can see this idea that Matthew is broken up into five different parts. It's not just a random thing that we made up. Matthew's giving us these indications. When he finishes the teaching section, he indicates when Jesus finished saying these things, he went on to the next place. And it kind of helps the reader. Uh, Matthew doesn't give us chapter breaks, you know, naturally when he was writing this, but it was his way of saying, and now we're going to move on to something else. So 19.1 moves us on to this topic of divorce. Verse 3, when these Pharisees came to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? What are they doing here? They're drawing on Deuteronomy chapter 24. So if you'll hold your place there, stick your little Southern Oklahoma Baptist note sheet there at that part of your Bible, and then turn back to Deuteronomy 24, I want you to see what the Pharisees are, are drawing on. Because they're going to pick up this passage from Moses' teaching, and they're going to refer to it in just a minute. But this is, this is what's in the background. So this is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Deuteronomy 24, 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. 
Now, in Jewish history, there was all kinds of debate back on verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. There were two different schools of thought on what it meant for her to be indecent or be displeasing. One took a pretty strict view, and it only dealt with issues related to sexual immorality. There was another school that took a pretty wide-open view, and if you didn't like her cooking, that was grounds for saying, see ya. Uh, don't look at anybody, don't, you know, don't elbow your spouse or anything like that. It, it really was like just for just about any reason that you could come up with, you could send her away and say, you're indecent, you're displeasing, and she would be, she would be sent away. So all of this idea uh, began to, to, to build up almost to a modern-day no-fault divorce type of culture where you just, for many, many reasons, a woman could be sent away. Now, now notice, she did not have the same power toward her husband in, in Jewish life. Someone in Roman life, they did, but not in Jewish life. This was the man that had the power to, to do this. And so this is kind of the situation that Jesus is being faced with. What does Jesus do when he's faced with this? Verse 4, he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus, knowing they're dealing with this tradition that goes back to Deuteronomy 24, he presses it further back. So he wants to get back to the foundational creation theology here. What has been the ideal from the very beginning? He's getting back to those foundational principles. This idea of Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. The idea that covenant marriage, it's not just a social contract because it helps society. It's not just a convenient way to operate. That this really is God's design, God's purpose for creation. And so Jesus is trying to tell them, before you guys get caught up in all these traditions about what's okay for divorce, let's make sure we don't forget the foundation, God's purposes for his people and for creation. So he takes them back to those ideals, those foundations. How do the Pharisees respond to this? Verse 7, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, so here they're picking up on that, that uh, Deuteronomy 24 thing. What are they trying to do here? They're trying to force Jesus into a corner where either he has to reject Moses, which they already think that he's abolishing the law. They already don't like Jesus because he's getting rid of what they see as the point of the law. So either he's going to be forced there or he's going to be forced to speak against divorce in a way that's going to make him popular in, in another camp. So he's seemingly caught between a rock and a hard place based on their question. What does Jesus do? How does he counter this? Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus does two key things here. First, he makes a clear distinction between command and permission. Because look back at their statement in verse 7. Their statement is, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? The way they're presenting the case sounds like this is God's good will for his people, that this is one of the Ten Commandments. A man should divorce his wife. They're setting it up as a basic command of God as they're tricking Jesus. What does Jesus do in verse 8? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you. He's not going to use the command word because he knows what his opponents are trying to do at this point. This is not a good command of God. This is a permission that was given because your hearts are hard. Do all the translations uh, in verse 8, do they say permitted? What else do we have going on there? Moses permitted, allowed, okay. Yeah, so allowed or permitted. This idea, it wasn't a foundational command. This was a permission given. It was a concession. It was not the divine principle. And so on your notes there under point three, Jesus' counter, point three, point C, Scripture is not contradicting itself but dealing with two distinct situations. Um, so Genesis is the statement of the ideal will of God Deuteronomy is a regrettable but necessary provision for those occasions when human sinfulness has failed to maintain the ideal. That's from R.T. France in his commentary. So Jesus' response says, wait, wait, wait. I'm not going to get pushed in that corner because we're not talking about the same things here. God's good command is found in Genesis 1 and 2. This is what he's desired for his people. Moses has given you a way to handle when the hardness of your heart requires something like this. So look back in verse 8 again, verse 8 and 9. Actually, verse 9 would be the point here. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, that's that famous Greek word porneia, uh, so pornography comes from that, porneia having to do with all kinds of sexual sin, sexual immorality related to that, except in those cases, and then so a man who does this, who divorces his wife for a reason other than that, and then marries another woman, commits adultery, because Jesus is saying that first bond was never broken. You, you're still married in God's eyes. There's still a covenant relationship going on there. And so he's making sure they understand the ideal. The ideal is found in Genesis 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 24 was just a concession. Now let's talk about this idea of adultery and remarriage just for, just for a second. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 has some good material related to how we understand. Paul gives some guidance about, about remarriage and what situations that should happen. If you turn your note sheet over to the, to the top of the next side. France has, has a good point, R.T. France has a good point here, where he says, in, in the culture of the time, divorce and the right to remarry are thus inseparable, and the Jewish world knew nothing of a legal separation which did not allow remarriage. So it's not in these situations that Jesus is not allowing remarriage. What Jesus is very clear about, though, 
is there's no world in which you just say, oh, I'm finished with that person, now I'm going to move on to the next person. That is not how marriage works in, in God's eyes. If you find yourself in the regrettable situation where a marriage bond is broken because of unfaithfulness, then you mourn that, and then we find a way to move forward in a way that honors the Lord. But there's none of this just push that one to the back because it didn't work out, and then move on to the next. That's the idea, the argument that Jesus is building up here in these verses. So what did the disciples do? Because they've been quiet, thankfully, <laughs> up to this point, but they can't hold it in. And so what did the disciples say in verse 10? Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> what, are they, what are they getting at here? Um, it seems to be another statement of a lack of faith on, on the disciples' part. Maybe a little bit of sarcastic, uh, tongue-in-cheek thing here, but it's almost like they're saying, why would I want to get into a marriage when there was no door of escape? <laughs> they're like, so... Verse 10, if this is the situation, if, if there's no way out of this, you know, unless there's unfaithfulness, then it'd be better not even to marry in the first place. This is not the statement of faith that Jesus was probably looking for at, at this point. This is not the, not the disciples' best, best comment in, in the Gospels in this situation. And so what does Jesus do? He calls their bluff. And so verse 11, this is what Jesus replied. Okay, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, there is a ton of debate about what this word means that, that Jesus is dealing with, but this idea of it's better not to marry. Jesus says, well, not everybody can accept that way of doing things, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, some have been given to this way of life. So, let me try to make, make this clear because it get, get muddy really quickly. The disciples, in their response in verse 10, are right on the edge of mocking singleness just a little bit. They're saying marriage is really hard. Singleness is not an option for us. So what are we supposed to do? What Jesus is going to do in reply is he's going to say, no, no, marriage is really great. And singleness is also a great calling you guys need to be careful about mocking either side of that. Marriage is a tight covenant. Singleness is a great calling. Let's not get in the middle being sarcastic toward either direction. And so verse 11, not everyone can receive this, but only to those who's, only to whom it has been given. Verse 12, for some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others are eunuchs or living as eunuchs because they have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, you're getting really close again to Paul's line of argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about how marriage and, and singleness works. But when it says to make oneself a eunuch, it's this idea of voluntarily choosing celibacy because in verse 12 there's two situations of eunuchs where the person didn't have a choice either they were born that way or they were made that way 
Others, though, might choose to live in that way because it's how they've been called to live as a part of the kingdom of heaven. Under point five on your notes, France has a comment there. The idea of marriage set out in verses four through nine remains God's standard, so you're not going to lower the standard on marriage, but it's not the only way of faithfulness to the creator's purpose. There's this way of singleness that is equally honoring to the Lord, to those whom it has been given. So, uh, a supernatural gift, Paul calls it the same word for spiritual gift. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 7 about the calling to singleness, that there's either an inclination or a special ability, gifting power that's given to someone to, to live uh, a life of singleness for the kingdom of heaven. Not just because you want to travel a bunch and do your own thing, but because, no, this is the calling to the kingdom of heaven. This is how I've been called to give my life away for the things of God. So Paul says you've got two good options, and Jesus says the same thing here. Covenant, lifelong marriage, or a life of committed singleness to the kingdom of heaven. Those are, are both God-honoring ways to live your life. Then, interestingly, he makes a comment about children immediately after this. It's interesting. So he, he sets up this argument about marriage, and then he follows it immediately with comments about children. Verse 13. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now Jesus has to be just right, just I know Jesus doesn't get out of control angry in a sinful way, but you've got to feel like the righteous anger is, is pretty, pretty high for him at this point because they've come right up to the edge of misunderstanding and mocking the idea of marriage. And now here come these children. Where do these children come? They come out of committed marriages. So we have the foundation of a family established at the beginning of 19, and then Jesus purposely brings a child into play here because this is the good gift that comes from a covenant marriage. These children are coming, and the disciples rebuke those who brought them. And so what does Jesus say in 14? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now that set of verses is really interesting the way Matthew uses it because it's 13 and through 15 is a bridge passage. It carries forward the divorce marriage argument from the beginning of 19, but it also, as we're going to see Sunday, it sets up the rich young ruler story that comes next. So 13 through 15 is this very strategic passage that, that Matthew will often do where he'll use a story to end what just came and set the stage for what's coming is, is kind of the idea that's going on here with these children. So what do we learn here? A couple of comments underneath that heading of children on your notes. We see the connection between divorce and marriage and the discussion of children. It shows again how Jesus upholds the value of family, how he protects and honors the vulnerable. That's something I want to point out while we have time. Both both of these stories in Matthew 19, Jesus is setting up protections for groups of people who could be victimized easily. A wife who could be put away without just cause, just be divorced and sent away, and a child who could be neglected. So what does Jesus do? He upholds and protects the wives, and he puts his care and his protection on these children and says, no, they're received in. Good lesson for us. Why 
has God designed marriage and family and the church to work in the way it does? If we do our job well, it protects and upholds the value and dignity of women, and it protects and cares for children. God's design is always meant to do those things well, and we see that worked out in these, in these two stories. Um, the disciples felt their master had more important concerns, even though we know already where Jesus' concern lies, not with those who are great, but with those who are needy. Um, Jesus reverses conventional values and accepts as important those whom society despises. All right, so what are the implications? What are the take-homes from, from Matthew chapter 19? First, we see God's will for gender, marriage, children, celibacy. Um, Jesus' positive affirmations here of marriage and children help us address contemporary questions about homosexuality and gender. Uh, sometimes the point will be made by people either in culture or just in the church that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality or he, oh, that didn't come out, homosexuality or he never spoke about these topics. Uh, but what he did do is he very, very, very clearly affirmed God's Genesis creation plan for marriage. And he very clearly affirmed the idea of gender, and he very clearly affirmed the idea of parents and children. So does he speak against these things? Maybe not in the way that somebody else would want, but what you do get in Scripture is a very clear teaching about what God does want. And so if it doesn't match up with the ideal and will of God, we could say it's not honoring to him. And so this passage, Matthew 19, is a core passage for dealing with questions that people have about homosexuality and, and gender fluidity and questions that people are struggling with. And so when someone says, well, the Bible never addresses that, Matthew 19 is a good place to go to have those biblical conversations about, but what does Jesus say about these topics? How, how do we see God's will and God's ideal laid out in Scripture about how to handle these? Jesus repeatedly affirms the biological family within his Father's creation purposes without idolizing the family within the kingdom. This is the balance we have to find that is really, really hard to find. In the church, we uphold God's design for the family because we believe it is for his good purpose. It's for his glory and, and, and our good. At the same time, we don't idolize the family or count the biological family to be everything that's meant to be for the kingdom of heaven. This tension is always hard because either we find ourselves deconstructing or downplaying family or we find ourselves elevating family so much that we hold on to family as an idol that gets in the way of our devotion to God. So what we have to figure out how to do in the church is, God, this is your good plan for people to live in marriage, for children, for how we live in singleness. This is your good plan for your world. And at the same time, let me not make this an idol that gets in the way of what you've called me to do. And in the middle of this with marriage and gender and all the issues that are involved, remembering as well just how broken we can be in sin and how much we need to understand the power of the gospel to redeem. Uh, many of you have testimonies about a marriage that did not go the way you wanted or the way you planned or the way you expected. 
And yet God in his kindness uh, brought his grace and his mercy and his redemption into those situations. And, and in hearing many of your stories, you would be the first to say, that was not the ideal. That was not what I desired. That was not what I wanted. And yet through that, through trusting God's grace and mercy, he's brought good things out of it that I, I could have never known or expected or planned. And so when we see this brokenness as a church, we don't push broken people into a darker hole. We say, we realize that's not God's ideal, it's not God's will, but there is hope and there is grace, and, and come here and find that healing that, that's needed. And so when you're ministering to people who are hurting this ways, I pray, I pray God will give you grace in, in those conversations. And, and Matthew 19 is a good place to go. So let's pray together, and it's 7.30, we need to wrap up. God, I know that many of us over the next couple of weeks will probably have conversations with people who are battling questions about divorce. Maybe people who are living with a lot of guilt or shame because of something that's happened in their past. You know, in our culture, there's a lot of uproar about questions regarding marriage and gender and sexuality. And God, we thank you for places in Scripture like Matthew 19 that provide a foundation, that provide stability. When everything around us seems so chaotic, one of the great gifts of your word is that it brings peace and stability and direction. There's so many hard issues, so many hard discussions painful situations, but God, we look to you, and we thank you that your word never changes, that we can trust in the hope of the gospel, and God, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear this week, that if we run into people who are hurting because of divorce, we run into people who are in a hard place in life, uh, let us not just pass them by, let us slow down and, and have conversations and pray with them and, and remind them that there's hope beyond what they're facing right now, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you so much for being here. God bless you all.